If it's your first time here with us, uh, we're so glad to have you. I'm John, one of the pastors. And uh, if this is your first week here, you've caught us in week two of a DNA series. We're just starting to talk about what we feel like are the three things that are pillars um, of our church, family, dignity, and hope. And today I get a chance um, to talk about hope. Second Corinthians chapter four, starting in verse seven, and I'm going to read to 18, um, and then we'll pray. Now, we have this treasure in clay jars so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that Jesus' life may also be displayed in our mortal flesh. So then death is at work in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith in keeping with what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, and therefore we speak. For we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you. Indeed, everything is for your benefit. As grace extends through more and more people, it may cause thanksgiving to increase to the glory of God. Therefore, we don't give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we don't focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would correct our vision. Give us eyes to see what's real, even if it's invisible to us now. Help us to proceed in faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you all take a seat? Thomas Edison puts it like this. He says, our greatest weakness lies in giving up. The most certain way to succeed is always to try just one more time. Our greatest weakness lies in giving up. The most certain way to succeed is to try just one more time. I give up. I said those words uh, more time than I care to admit. I give up are three of the most powerful words that exist. They shape or they have the power to shape your destiny and your future. I played the trumpet from sixth grade to eighth grade. I'm in an eighth grade. I use those three words. I give up. I pawned my trumpet and bought some shoes. Uh, to this day, uh, I am not a good trumpet player. My future was shaped by those words. I give up. I give up. I've used those words in relationships at one point with family members. And the relationships are still being repaired to this day. I give up. I've had relationships where those words have been used towards me. And the relationships are still being repaired to this day. And one thing that I know about those three words is I'm not the only one that's used those three words. I would imagine that if you're here in this room to, today, you've used those three words at some point or sometimes. Some of us use it too easily, but some of us use those words after a long season of hardship. Circumstances tend to weigh us down and we find ourselves in a hole. And it seems like that the more and more trouble just feels like it's dirt thrown on an open grave. We, we feel buried alive. You know the feeling of being under expectations 
friends or family that questions your motives. You question decisions that you've made in the past. You find yourself in a hard time and you start to question God's goodness and why he left you there. You're working on your marriage and it's not getting any better. You give your life to do work in broken communities and it seems like things aren't getting any better. And you know the feeling of being buried alive. And what you know is that there's no better feeling, at least initially, than giving up. You know the relief that comes from, I'm so weighed down by this relationship, this person, this place, that I just give up. And for a moment, you, you feel free, like you can breathe. But what we have to learn is that that feeling of relief comes at a cost. Anytime you step out from under the weight of some kind of hardship, something crumbles and falls apart. We've seen it true in the world that we live. We've seen it true in the neighborhood that we live in. The West End is the way that it is because at some point people got to the point where they said, I give up. It's not worth it anymore. Ten years ago, there was a scandal in Atlanta in public schools uh, where principals and administrators got so frustrated with the hard work of teaching students that came from troubled backgrounds and had a hard time grasping things that they started this cheating scandal. Let's just pass them on all their tests. I give up. I'm tired of this work. Let's just pass them on their tests and move on. It took two years for it to come up in the courts. It took five years for there to be a court date. It took nine years for the people that were guilty to actually start to serve prison time. But in the meanwhile, do you know what took place to all those kids that they just passed through? They're bearing the consequences of it. Spiritually, we know that this is the same way for, for the past few months. Pastor Rich has led um, our pastoral interns, Nick, Tim, and Mo. Thursday afternoons, they walk around the West End and just get a chance to try to talk to people that live here. And do you know what their suspicion of Christians is? People that give up. When it comes to restoring what's gone on in this context, they've said that the Muslims have been out here, the Hebrew Israelites have been out here, the five percenters have been out here. But Christians? They lock their doors as they drive in one day a week for church. They unlock their doors to go into church. They lock their doors while they're in. They come out and unlock their doors to get back into the car and to lock their doors and to drive out. And they don't see them again in a place like this until next Sunday. When we give up under the weight of hardships, things crumble. The reason why we talk about this concept of hope is because we know this, look, hopelessness is not just the problem. Hopelessness is the precursor that leads to major problems. So what we want, what you want, what I want, is we want to have this undying resolve, this undying hope that regardless of the hardships that come our way, we can say... I'm going to stay in this marriage. I'm going to stay in this relationship. I'm going to stay in this friendship. I'm going to stay in this church. I'm going to stay in this place and see what God does. But the question is, how do we get this hope? Well, that's what I want to spend our time trying to talk about today. The feeling of being buried alive. How do we get up un 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 under it? The answer is hope. And here's the good news. There was a preacher that said a long time ago he talked about faith everybody wants to have this big faith and he says the important thing that you have to know about faith which is what you need to know about hope is that the size of your faith and hope is not the most important thing it's the object of your faith and hope that's the most important thing so regardless of if you have big faith 
or big hope that your airplane is going to get you to where you need to go, your hope has never fueled an airplane. People with big hope and with small hope get on the same plane and get to the same place. So I want you to know, although we pray that God would fill us with hope, even if our hope's not big, so long as it's placed in the right object, I think that we can have an undying hope. And the reason why I'm up here today is because what the Apostle Paul's going to say here uh, is that people who tend to judge a book by their cover miss out on the hope of the gospel because the Christian hope rarely comes in an appealing package. It often looks like failure. It often looks like the thing that makes us want to give up. And so what this passage is all about today is how we can have that undying hope. The Christian hope is like a hole in the wall restaurant. What I love about Rich and Mo uh, is uh, they'll take me to spots. And on the outside of the place, I say, there's no way I'm going into Lee's Bakery. But as soon as we walk in the door, we find that they've got the best pho and bami's here in Atlanta. The Christian hope looks like on the outside. There's no way that I'm going to sign up for those hardships. And Paul's saying, wait a minute, you've just got to go in and see what's inside. So here's my main point. The, the main point is this. Here's where our hope comes from. Only a, ho- only a hope in the resurrection can birth an undying resolve. It is only the Christian hope in a resurrection that can birth this undying resolve. Let me see if I could put it a little more simpler. Here's what I want you to walk away with. If Jesus Christ got up, then you and I have run out of reasons to give up. If Christ got up, we've run out of reasons to give up. Here's the first thing that Paul says, looking for verse 7. Now we have this treasure in jars of clay so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may be displayed in our body. He talks about the very first thing is here's the root of our faith. The root of our hope is that there is resurrection hope for regular people. When you hear the words buried alive or you hear the words six feet deep, what word comes to your mind? Death. And that's rightly so. We put corpses in the ground. If somebody is buried alive, then they are prepared for death. But I want to help you see what Paul's trying to say here. Uh, Roots from a tree. Share the same home that corpses do. While somebody may die if they are buried alive, I want you to hear this. Roots must be buried alive in order to live. Paul's saying, no, no, listen, we're buried alive, but hear this. We aren't corpses. We are roots. This hardship needs to be piled on and on and on in order that we might find true life. Paul is writing this whole letter of 2 Corinthians because there's a group of folks that stood in Paul's place and they said, look at how God has blessed us. Look at all the trials that he's gone through. Is this really the guy that you want to follow? And Paul's writing this whole letter to say, listen, I'm like a hole in the wall restaurant. The outside may not look too good, but I'm telling you, there's a treasure in this clay jar that's meant not for you to praise me or look at me, but praise it the God that's inside of me. Years ago, uh, when we first started the church, we had this guy, Charlie Crane. There's a few of y'all that remember Charlie Crane. Charlie Crane was this short White dude, bald, not too intimidating. Charlie did our finances. Uh, 
Charlie would go to the bank for us five years ago. Charlie would never make a deposit in a money bag because he would be an easy target. So do you know what he did? He took the money that he had to deposit in the bank, the treasure, and he wrapped it in a brown paper sack in order to hide it, in order to keep him from hardship. And when he went to the bank, Nobody from the bank thought his money was worth any less because of the package that it was in. His treasure was equally treasury, right? Charlie did this in order to keep himself from hardship. What Paul's saying is, look, look, God wraps his treasure in these clay jars, these fragile things that is us. Hear this, not to keep us from hardship. He does the opposite. He wraps his good treasure inside of us, not to exempt us from hardship, but hear this, to guarantee hardship. But he wants to guarantee it in such a way, hear this, that we are not exempt from hard times. We are just exempt from the devastating effects of hard times. So what he's going to say in verse 8 and 9 is this. Look, there's something valuable, something powerful about the power of God that is dimmed in prosperity. Something that only shines in hardship. And so Paul's going to use these things, right? Crushed, but not destroyed. Perplexed, but not in despair. What he's saying is, look, look. We're chased, but we're not caught. I've been chased by many a dog in my lifetime, uh, but because I'm fast, I've never been caught. I've been in fights, as I shared a few weeks ago. Yeah, I've been knocked down, but I've never been knocked out. So what Paul's saying is, look, 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 there's something great about the power of God that's displayed when he puts us in the way of hardship, but the hardship doesn't consume us. Acts chapter 14, the Apostle Paul goes to this place, Lystra, as he's about this restorative work of preaching the gospel, spreading hope. He comes across this man that's lame. He heals this man that's lame. And the people of the town want to worship him as a God. And he says, y'all don't trip. Like, there's a God that I want you to worship. I don't want you to worship me. Then what takes place is things uh, come to a head. And I just want to read it. For you, so you can see how quickly things turn. Acts chapter 14, starting in verse 19, it's up here on the screen. It says this Some Jews from Antioch and Iconium, or they came from there. And when they won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, thinking he was dead. After the disciples gathered around him, he got up and went back into the town. The next day, he left with Barnabas for Derby. After they had preached the gospel in that town and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them, hear this, it's necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church and prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And you know what takes place after Acts chapter 14? Acts chapter 15. And then Acts chapter 16. In Acts 16, Paul goes to this place, Philippi. And as he continues this restorative work of bringing God's kingdom into the world, he sets this slave girl that's oppressed by demons free. Her masters get mad at him. They flog him. They beat him. They throw Paul into jail. He's persecuted by men. But hear this. He's not abandoned by God. So Paul sings and God comes and breaks him out of jail. And then the jailer who's getting ready to kill himself, Paul says, wait a minute. God broke us out of jail. But listen to this. All of us are still here. We haven't left. Don't kill yourself. Paul shares the gospel with this guy and he comes to faith. Paul said, no, no, this is, this is just the normal way that the glory of God is put on display. And I want you to hear this. Uh, 
Although Paul is a full-time vocational minister, what it's not saying is that you and I have to be in his same job in order to see this take place. His work was vocational, but ours in the jobs that we live in, in the relationships that we take part of, in the marriages that we're in, in the communities that we help to restore, even if your ministry is not full-time being paid with a microphone to preach the gospel. It is demonstrational. The power of God is meant to flow through you. So what Paul's saying is, listen, We're not exempt from hardship. What the power of God does, it just exempts us from the devastating effects of it. And and his theology undergirds it. Look here at verse 10. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that Jesus' life may be displayed in our mortal flesh. So then death is at work in us, but life in you. After Paul talks about this, what he does is he roots it in, no, listen, the reason why this takes place for the Christian is because it took place for Jesus Christ. This is how it is. Do you remember being in school um, and you would get confused with how to spell words like chief, or there, or pieces, and your instructor said this, no, no, listen, listen, listen. The normal way that things go is I before E, except after what? All right, we got a couple of good spellers in here. Whenever we talk about those two words, life and death, which one always comes first? Go to a graveyard, and what you'll see is two dates, And the first date that comes is the birth date, the date of life. The next date that comes is the day of death. Do you see what Paul did here in 10 through 12? As he talks about Jesus and he talks about life and death. Do you know which one always comes first when he says here? Death. Death. Verse 10. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body. So that the life of Jesus may be displayed in our body. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that Jesus' life may also be displayed in our mortal flesh. What he keeps saying is this. Look, look, look. You and I who know that this is how God's work, how God works, our hope is that Paul's saying is we always carry around the death of life. That the rest of the world the way that we make decisions, it seems like we're always throwing dirt on our grave. When we make a decision about where we're going to live, they say, why would you ever live there throwing dirt on a grave? When we make decisions about relationships that we're not going to be in, for the sake of the gospel, folks say, why would you do that? When we make decisions about the marriages that we're going to stay in, folks would say, why would you do that? You're burying yourself for life, ex- exposing your- yourself to hardship. And what Paul's saying is, no, no, this is what we do because we know the way that God works. That our hope is in the resurrection. And in order for something to be resurrected, it has to die first. So death of a career or accomplishments is It's not something that we fear because we know that the power that's inside of us doesn't keep us from hardships. It keeps us from the devastating effects of those hardships. Verse 13, the theology doesn't just undergird what we do, but it overflows. Verse 13, it says this, and since we have the same spirit of faith in keeping with what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore we speak. That's from Psalm 116. David is despairing of life itself. But in Psalm 116, he says, yo, those thi- though things look like it's at their end, God, I trust in you. I, I know that it's not going to end there. And then verse 14, and I want you to see this. Look, for we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus. And present us with you. Christ's resurrection 
is not just a demonstration of God's power of what he can do. It is a promise of what God will do in the life of the Christian that walks that same path. It's a resurrected hope. And the reason why Paul says, no, no, this takes place with you is Paul wants to know that he wants you to know that this hope is for regular people. Paul doesn't get to be in a special line because he was an apostle. Paul's saying, I'm waiting in line like the rest of y'all. His shabby conditions don't discredit God's grace. They prove that God's grace on him is real. Let me see if I can explain it like this. A few years ago, I went to Detroit. And while I was there, I went to the Motown Museum, uh, which is really uh, just all the homes on the one block uh, that they bought back in the day that they recorded all of these songs in. So you go into these homes that look shabby from the outside, and there's one room that they ask you to stand in. And while you stand there, there's this hole that's cut in the roof. It looks real jagged. And then they clap their hands, and you hear an echo. And what you find out is that they put that hole in the roof because the sound sounded better if it went through the attic. So they recorded songs like My Girl and a bunch of other things right there. So in that room or in those shabby homes, you had a group of folks that recorded more number one hits than the Beatles, Elvis, and the Beach Boys combined. And they do that to say, you're spending too much time looking at the externals and not being reminded that there were treasures inside of this house that made those hits. It wasn't the equipment. This is how God does things. Let me see if I can put it like this. The passage that we read, Moses goes to the burning bush and God reveals himself for the first time there at the bush. And do you know what catches Moses? Not just the great power of God on display, but the great power of God on display to preserve this bush that is on fire but should be consumed. And what God's saying is the only reason that this bush is not consumed is because I'm there. So then God says, look, do you know the people that are mine that are undergoing trial and hard times and fire? I'm going to step in and save them. And then what God does is he takes it a step further. Jesus, a regular man, was completely consumed by the fire of God's wrath and God didn't preserve him. He was buried in the ground. But do you know what God did? He rose him from the dead as a guarantee. Paul saying, this is the source of our hope that our trials, listen, don't discredit God's grace in our life. Our trials are nothing more than the trails that God's grace loves to hike down. How you endure trials, the hope that you have, doesn't say so much about you as it does the God that fills you. Yeah, I was in Jersey this past week on Wednesday preaching at a conference in the morning on suffering. And this lady comes up to me at the end and she says, John, do you know uh, what the biggest threat to my Christianity was and when it came? It didn't come before I was a Christian. It became after I was a Christian. Because the people that told me about Christianity told me that if I became a Christian, that my life externally would get better. And she says, and do you know what? It didn't. It got harder. We know how that feels, to feel buried alive like we're suffering. But I want you to hear what Paul's trying to say is that this treasure, this preserving grace of God, it changes how we look at things. Hear this. We don't look at the suffering and say, There's no way that God can be with me or no way that God can be with them because of all the hard things that they go through. What Paul's saying is, no, no, no. Don't look at the rate of suffering. Look at the survival rate. It's not just look at all the hard things that I've been through. 
But look at all the hard things that God has brought me out from. And you read 2 Corinthians 11 and listen to what Paul says. Paul starts to say things like, yo, I've been flogged. 39 lashes five times. Beaten, imprisoned, shipwrecked three times. Starved, naked, persecuted, abandoned. And folks would look that and say, man, that's crazy. There's no way that God's with him because... Look at all the bad luck that he has. And Paul's saying, there's no way that God's not with me because I'm still here. And this is this is what I think I want us to see here as we talk about this concept of hope. You that's here that may be a perfectionist, too afraid to show your weakness to people. Or maybe you're too ashamed, and so you just live in denial as if nothing is wrong. And you come into a place like this, find yourself involved in community, and you never share with anybody outside of your immediate circle the hardships, the struggles with marriage, the career-defining losses and deaths that you have. And you always keep it hidden. In keeping those things hidden, you are robbing God of his preserving glory. And the attention is not on him, it's on you. It's like wearing a white dress to God's wedding. So what Paul's going to say is, no, 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 I constantly boast in the weaknesses that I have because I know that when I'm weak that, and people get to see me at my wit's end, That if God really does sustain me with this hope, it's going to produce more glory for him. So, Christian, we don't downplay suffering. We own it and call people to look closer and watch, see what God does. We confess that although we are buried alive, we are not corpses. We are roots being exposed to the power of God. If Christ really got up, And you and I have run out of reasons to give up. And if the root is a resurrected hope, here's the fruit, an undying resolve. Verse 16, it says this, look, therefore, we don't give up. Whenever you come across a therefore in the Bible, the question that you have to ask is, what's it there for? And what Paul's saying is he really is trying to root this hope in the resurrection. And your theology about Christ raising from the dead is not just trivia. It's meant to transform how you live and engage life. It's meant to shape your character. And so Paul's saying that if Christ really got up, we don't give up. Hardship is not the end or enemy of your hope. It's the illuminator of where your hope is. And so what he's going to say is this. Although our outer selves are wasting away, what he does not mean is just the old man, just the sinful flesh. What he means is the external life that we've learned to put our hope in. The jobs, the prestige, the career advancements, the praise, the acclaim. And what Paul's saying is, look, All of that is wasting away, and though it is decaying and falling apart, Paul's saying our inner man is being renewed day by day. That this life that we live is like a cocoon. There's this thing called the orange-spotted tiger clearwig. It's a type of butterfly or a caterpillar that turns into one. And I just want to show you the cocoon that it makes. Um, Jazz, if you could put that on the screen. So it's strange because the cocoon that it makes looks like this precious metal. And it's beautiful to see. But hear this. If that beautiful cocoon on the outside does not decay and die and fall apart, what's inside will. That picture of prosperity if it stays like that, will be a prison that kills what's inside. What Paul's saying is that that the hardships that we face are not meant to drown out hope. They're meant to reveal that hope, right? 
Isn't it, wasn't it, the decay of your very life, the decay of the things that you put your hope in, that person, that job, that marriage, that house, and it was the decay of that very thing that made you realize how shallow that that hope was? And it was in that decay that you met Jesus? What Paul's saying is, that's not just how we've gotten into the faith, but that's the same process that's going to stay around as long as we're here. And he's saying that's good news. Though the outer man is decaying, the inner person is being renewed day by day by day by day. So if you are a believer in here... Every trouble, every hardship, everything that you've gone through, you can be reminded that that's something that God is using for a great purpose. And here's what that does. It causes you and I to redefine hardship. Look at the next verse, verse 17. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable weight of glory. Here's what Paul's trying to do here. He's trying to say the trouble that you go through here, hear this. He's not saying it's light in an absolute sense. There are things that are incredibly hard that we feel buried alive. He's not minimizing depression, anxiety, the death of a loved one. Those things are really hard. What he's saying is, no, no, these things are light, comparatively speaking. Yeah, here's what I mean by that. If you were to stand next to Shaquille O'Neal, what word would you use to describe him? Tall, big. If you were to stand next to the Empire State Building, what word would you use to describe it? Tall, big. Am I to assume that both of those talls mean the same thing? No. Because if I compare those two, right, if I compare Shaq to everybody else, well, yeah, he's tall. If I compare him to a building, what I say is he's tiny. What Paul's trying to say is, no, listen, if you compare your trouble to everybody else, everybody else's marriage, everybody else's home, everybody else's job, of course it's going to seem big. But if you compare it, not to everybody else, but you compare the trouble that you find here in this world to eternity, then you're going to have to use some other word for your trouble. In comparison, in eternity, all of us are going to look back, even on lifelong troubles, lifelong chronic illnesses that we face, and in eternity... We're going to look back and nobody, not a single person, is going to call any of those things big. So Paul's saying, so right now, don't deny your trouble. Just make the right comparison. Verse 18, hear this, so we don't focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. What he's not saying is to completely forget about your troubles. That is impossible. What he is saying is don't focus on them. The great Chinese philosopher Bruce Lee put it like this in Enter the Dragon. Um, he said this. It's like a finger pointing away to the moon. Don't concentrate on the finger or you will miss all the heavenly glory. The purpose of a finger pointing is not for you to look at the finger. If you look at it, you're going to miss the thing that it's pointing to. The purpose of your trouble, hardship, frustrations that go on in this life is not for you to look at those, but what it's pointing to. And if we would refocus and compare those things, not to everybody else,
but to eternity, that Paul's saying that you and I would have this undying resolve, but what's the problem? The problem is that as much as we try not to, we still compare to everyone else. So do you know what God does in his grace? He inserts himself into the conversation. Jesus Christ comes and lives on this world. The person who has the favor of God embodied like no other. And he says, if you're, con- if you're intent on staring at the finger, if you're content on comparing your life to everybody else, then compare your life to me. He's going to insert himself as one of the everybody else's. And do you know what you see? You see a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. You see a man who comes into the world to go after people that are lost causes. And here's what I mean by a lost cause. The only people that ever turn to Jesus are solely and primarily motivated to turn to him because they've seen or felt their own insufficiency. That the only way that he can get folks to turn to him is by allowing them to steer their life the way they want it, to crash their ship and to come out on the other end. Do something this afternoon. Go into your Bibles, and I want you to read Ezekiel chapter 16. Write that text down. Ezekiel chapter 16, what God's going to do is he's going to compare humanity to an abandoned baby that was left on the side of the road, uncared for. And what God's going to say throughout the chapter is, I got you out of desperation. I cared for you. I made you beautiful. And do you know what you did with your beauty? You used it to get other things that are going to decay. And you led your life into ruin. But then at the end of it, it ends with a promise. Him saying, even though you've done that and everybody else said that you were a lost cause, I'm going to come back and get you and make you my bride. Jesus comes into the world, goes after lost causes, dies, and finds himself as a lost cause, but he gets up from the grave, gets up from a lost cause, and then sends you and I back into the world to get lost causes. So do you know what that means for us? If he really got up, it's impossible for us to give up. There is no such thing as a lost cause. No person, no relationship, no marriage, no circumstance, no neighborhood. Our hope isn't just rooted in a God that preserves people. It's rooted in a God that raises people from the dead. Our mission statement as a church is we want to display the greatness of Jesus Christ in the everyday lives of his people. I think after reading a text like this, I think our mission statement should be Something to the effect of this. We don't give up. For the Christian, if you are a Christian, your mission statement, and like what fuels you, is you don't give up. You can't give up. You can't look at anything or anybody and label it a lost cause. It's impossible. So if that's the case, and as I end here, I just want you to know, here's our commitment as a church. Our commitment as a church is to do two things. We want to plant and we want to pray. Here's what I mean by plant. We want to go after lost causes. There's a story in the Bible where Abraham and Lot are getting ready to choose the, fir- uh, the ground that they're going to split up. Lot looks out and says, there's a lush place right here, and there is a desert right here. So what Lot says is, 
Yeah, yeah, you're going to let me get first pick? I'm going to choose the lush ground. Abraham says, I'll go to the desert because I know that if God's with me, we can bring hope out of a hopeless place. And he does. So we don't look for the well-tilled soil. Do you know what we look for? We look for the hardened concrete, and we are reminded that if you put that seed in the right place, even where concrete cracks, you walk and see our cracked lot right across the street, and what you'll find is there's lots of bits of life springing up through all the cracks in the concrete. And what we're saying is if we're folks that don't give up, that's what we want to do. That's what we want to be in the relationships that we're in, in the way that we counsel people to endure and to thrive and to pray and to hope. We just want to be those that never give up because we have a hope that shines brightest when everybody else wants to give up. When you plant yourself in a place, and I'm not just talking about a neighborhood or location. There are folks that can come and move to a place like this. There are folks that feel led to and folks that don't feel led to. And that's fine. I mean, planting yourself in places that are hopeless, whether it's relationships or jobs or you name it. But here's what can take place. Eight years ago, Richard and Amanda and a few other families moved here to the West End. Here in the West End, eight or nine years ago now, there was one day Richard... Uh, and his family and the Browns all lived in this one house. And long story short, they came out one morning to a guy beating a lady with a rifle with another dead guy slumped over in the back of his truck. When they call out to stop what goes on and threaten to call the cops and come down, the guy gets into his car, backs up, hits her on the way out, and drives out. And the last words that they heard was, I'm coming back. Amanda calls me and says, hey, can we come over and stay at y'all's house? And we say, absolutely. So they come and stay, and it's, hey, y'all can stay here as long as you want, right? Because we, we want y'all to be safe. That's smart, Richard comes back home that night from a Bible study where he was just hit with the weight of the resurrection and the Christian hope. And what he said was, John, we've come here to talk about the greatness of God and all the hope that we have. Our neighbors can't go anywhere. What do we look like as the people that claim to have this hope fleeing at the first sign of trouble? So I think we're going to go back. Not a lot of fanfare about it. Didn't make an announcement. No Instagram snapshots of how I'm going to go back. But they went back. And I don't know about anybody else, but I know even in my own heart, that was the turning point of a hope that actually produces something. And that acorn was planted Eight years ago. And right now, you all, if you've been blessed in any way, shape, and form by what God has done through here or somebody's here, you're benefiting from sitting in some of the shade of that oak tree. And what we're saying is, as people of hope, we continue to look for cracks in the soil to plant. That if you plant and stay, that's what God can do. Two, we don't just plant, but we pray. Hopelessness comes. There's nothing we can do about it. But when we're threatened with hopelessness, what we do is pray that God would fill us with hope, that God would do something miraculous, that God would give us a vision of what could be. I love how our brother and sister talked about the hope of seeing people from contexts like this becoming missionaries across the world. And we've said from day one that if if people see the southwest of Atlanta as some black hole, we want it to become this beacon of hope. That if the gospel really does work and people that find themselves in the most hopeless of circumstances experience the hope of the life-giving power of the resurrection, then who better 
to go into the hardest to reach places in this world and proclaim the hope of the gospel because they aren't people that are just parroting something that they've heard from a Bible study. They're people that have experienced and seen how the hope of the gospel has changed their lives and families and neighborhoods and schools and friends and marriages and co-workers. And so we say we're going to continue to pray until that takes place. I want to close with a word from Babe Ruth. And he says this. You just can't beat the person that won't give up. We have no reason to. If Christ got up, then we won't give up. And I just want you to know, if that inspires countless people to partner with us and to do what God has called us to do, then praise God. And we hope all glory goes to God as people are rooted in the fact that uh, God will raise folks from the dead. But if what we're going to do with our hope, enter into and bear under hardships, if that causes countless people to say, it's too hard for me, I'm going to abandon ship, we are reminded that God delivered an entire nation out of bondage by taking Gideon's army of thousands and shrinking it to a few hundred. So we are confident if God could deliver an entire nation with 300 people, the people that we have here, we've got that here in this room. How many is it going to take to change the southwest side of Atlanta? Whether you're inspired to go or fearful, I want you to know as a church, because Christ got up, we just can't give up. That's going to be our agenda and our mantra, and we pray that you would join in with us. Since Christ got up, we can't give up. We won't give up. We don't give up. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your kindness towards us. Thank you for the hope that we have in the resurrection of your son who went after lost causes to show that there is no such thing. I pray this would be the hope that guides us and fuels us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.